lead us in the reading of scripture this morning. And let's stand together. We're going to be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe to you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else who thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from the God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from his dead, from the dead, pardon me. Now that I have already obtained, not that I have already obtained this, I am already, I am, uh, I'm sorry, I need to start that over again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are um, just humbled by the fact that we can be called your children. We're humbled by the fact that you have drawn us, Lord, to be part of your family, the church, that you have privileged us with your word. You've privileged us, Lord, with the the ministry of the, the preached word. And Lord, today we wanna place ourselves, Lord, under what you are saying through your messenger. And Lord, I just ask that you would be the one that is seen today, that, that I would simply be the vehicle, Lord, through which you accomplish your purposes. That our hearts would be tender, that we would be receptive, and Lord, that you would be glorified today. We need you, Lord, we need your help, we need wisdom that only comes from you. So, Lord, have your way with us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, on Resurrection Sunday, it is not uncommon for the pastor to speak about the resurrection, um, but on a number of fronts, in a number of ways. Um, We could talk about what I'm calling the story of the resurrection. And the story of the resurrection is primarily found in the Gospels where we see 
uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of running taking place. And Mary running, Peter running, and John running. And it's great to read and to study those narrative passages and to see um, just the shock um, in, the, in the experience of the disciples, as well as those who are also in Jerusalem hearing the effect of this news that Jesus is alive. Then there there are the facts of the resurrection that flow from the same passages, but we're talking about the fact that this is a historical event. We're talking about the actual um, accounting and, uh, and record of the crucifixion and the burial and all the little details that went into that as well as a tomb that was sealed and a watch that was placed and ultimately an empty tomb and linens lying where the body should have been. These are all facts, historical facts about that resurrection. We can also talk about what I'm calling now the proof of the resurrection. You may want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 just to see what I'm going to say. We have record of the events, we have the the gospel narratives, but we also have evidence given to us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and beginning at verse 5, this is what he says, "And, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. So we have these, this witness, this, this incredible crowd of, of witnesses of this resurrected Jesus. And when you take all that into account, the historical facts and records that there was a sealed tomb, that there was a watch, that that tomb was empty, that the linens were there, and then three days later, here's Jesus walking around, and there's eyewitness account. There's proof of that resurrection. We could talk about the theology of the resurrection, that that the resurrection historically has been and still is foundational to the church's understanding of this whole gospel, and that the the resurrection is critically important to that foundational um, structure and understanding of the church. Again, in 1 Corinthians, we read it earlier, beginning at verse 3, chapter 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So here's this theology that lays this foundation for the church and has been this foundation for the church through the years. And then there are the, what I call the prophecy of the resurrection. And primarily here, I'm thinking about what Jesus himself says in the Gospels about the fact that he was going to rise again. And you have a list there of some passages in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. If you want to follow along, you can turn there. I'm just going to read them briefly. These are key statements in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, 31. And he began, talking about Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You've got to think through this. This is Jesus saying to his disciple what is going to take place. And in this particular context, he has asked the question, who do men say that I am? 
And they say, well, Elijah, one of the prophets, and who, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you're the Christ. But he has a wrong understanding of who that Christ is because they were looking for a Messiah to come and to rule and reign immediately, overthrow the Roman uh, government at that point in time. And then he says, no, the, the Son of Man has to go suffer. He's going to go to a cross. He's going to rise again. Then one chapter over, chapter 9. And verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And then in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, it says this, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now, friends, that's powerful stuff, and that is prophetic stuff out of the lips of Jesus about what was going to happen to him. And then, we can talk about the preaching of the resurrection. What's interesting is you go to the, the book of Acts and you see the resurrection brought up countless times. This resurrection is on the lips of the apostles as they preach. And if you want to follow along, I'll give you the passages. You can kind of leaf your way through uh, Acts with me, but I want you to see this. Acts chapter 2 Verses 23 and 24, Peter speaking at Pentecost. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All right, he's preaching the resurrection here. Then, another chapter uh, over, in chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter now speaking in Solomon's portico. It says in verse 15, and you killed the author of life, that's Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And then Peter speaking before the Jerusalem council who are just kind of um, shaken by the healing of this crippled man. Acts chapter four and verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's Peter. And as we go on in Acts, we find Paul then preaching. Acts chapter 13, here's what happens when Paul is in Antioch, Pisidia. He says in verse 37 of chapter 13, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And that's the end of a discourse about the resurrection. And then, finally, in the book of Acts, I just want you to, to be mindful of Acts chapter 17, where, where Paul is in the uh, Areopagus in, A in Athens, and here is what he said, beginning at verse 30. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, or ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You can put in a little thing, why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that would be Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is there are a lot of different ways that we can come to the subject of the resurrection. There's a lot of things that can be preached. There's a lot of things that can be taught here. It's an incredible 
story. And it's a story that is rooted in historical fact. And it is proved to be true, both by the intensity of the security around the tomb and the evidence of an empty tomb. It is foundational for the church uh, and, and its teaching. And it's, it's rooted now in, and it's part of the fabric of what Jesus said and what the apostles said as they went around preaching the gospel. So for us as believers today, it is no small thing for us to say, he is risen. And what do we say? He is risen indeed. See, it's not just simply affirming a historical fact. There's far more going on with the resurrection than simply this wonderful event in the past. And by that, I do not want to diminish what Christ has done by being raised from the tomb, but there are present implications, there are present realities that we must consider. And so it isn't often that we take time on Resurrection Sunday to consider how crucial the resurrection is for our lives now. Now certainly Jesus was resurrected. As I mentioned, it's a great story rooted in history. There's proof and it's the foundation of our theology. But what is the benefit of the resurrection to me now? What difference does it make to my life now? And that's really where we wanna focus our attention this morning. I'd like for us to begin by reading our text again today, but in particular verses 10 and 11. And in verses 10 and 11, I want to introduce you to the seventh way we can present the resurrection. I'm calling it the life of the resurrection. Through the resurrection, we have been granted life. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now friends, it's important that we understand as we come to this passage this word know that Paul uses. It's the Greek word gnosko. Not trying to impress you, but we need to make some distinctions here. And ultimately it means knowledge that comes by means of experience. Okay? Not, not trying to be mystical here, but simply saying that, that as, you, as you interact, you gain experience, and that's how you ultimately get to know. In our English I might want to say language, there are different ways that knowledge is used. There's egghead knowledge, right? Some of you are eggheads, some of you know eggheads, but the idea there is that just people just are just packing their heads full of knowledge, full of truths, full of calculus and logarithms and things that I will never even comprehend, right? That's egghead knowledge. No, no shoulder poking or anything like that going on this morning. Um, then there's awareness knowledge where, where we, we say, we use the expression, I, I, I know what's going on. We, we have an awareness of what's happening around us, okay? So knowledge is used in, in that sense. Then there's, there's, this even kind of flows out of what Paul says, but we'll call it puffed up knowledge, where, where people uh, are full of themselves and, and love to hear themselves postulate with big words on the issues of life and they're just full of themselves, and many of them have talk shows um, uh, or write editorials or things like that. They just love to see themselves um, be the, the evidence of knowledge. But, but friends, as we come to Scripture, 
The, the knowledge that's being talked about here is a, a, a biblical knowledge that is personal and experiential. Paul isn't simply desiring to know um, about um, Christ. He's desiring to know Christ, and there's a huge difference. Now, I appreciate how Alec uh, Motier clarifies this for us, and just listen as I read his comments on this. He says, we have largely lost the biblical dimensions of the word knowledge in our customary use of it. We confine it almost to the contents of the brain. The Bible would not resist this meaning, but neither would it accept it as a complete definition. And this is the part where we, we need to kind of move away from what culture thinks and, and to what scripture would say, right? First, he says, it would add a practical dimension. Nothing is truly known unless it is being practiced in daily life or in some way, according to its nature, allowed to control the conduct of the person concerned. To depart from evil is understanding, Job 28, 28 says. So there's this practical dimension. He also goes on and says, secondly, in knowledge between persons, to know is to enter into the deepest personal intimacy and contact. The Bible does not say that Adam knew Eve because it is too shy to speak openly about sexual matters, but because this is what knowledge between persons is, deep, intimate, and unifying. Consequently, having been saved wholly and solely by Christ, Paul wants to enter into the deepest possible union with him. Now, many of you know I am an English soccer fan. Any, any brothers or sisters out there? Okay, I'm alone in this. <laughs> I will convert you yet, right? I'm an English soccer fan, and I have all my life been following a team called West Ham United. And um, I could tell you the names of most of the players. I could tell you where, uh, where um, they presently sit in the table. Um, I, I have a number of their shirts, some of which fit. Um, and in 2006, um, while we were on a journey to Israel, we had a day kind of layover in London. And uh, while everyone else went to Big Ben, the Tower of London, and the British Museum, I took off to Upton Park, also known as the Bowling Ground, and was given a VIP tour of the soccer stadium where West Ham United plays. I was able to stand on the field. I was able to um, go into the stands. I was taken into the inner sanctum of the locker rooms uh, where the players get their rehab. I was even given the opportunity, and some of you understand this, to do a jumping picture while I was there, which I'm very proud about. Um, but hear this, I have never been to a West Ham United game. I know, aww, right? I've never stood in the stands singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles, which is their theme song, okay? <laughs> I've never experienced the thrill of watching them play in person and lose again, okay? Because <laughs> they're not usually at the top of the league. Now, my point here is this. I know a lot about them. I follow them. I, I, I know the players. I, I have the uniforms, but I have never experienced personally being there at a game when they're playing. And if you know anything about English soccer, there's an atmosphere that you just cannot recreate in the context of a TV screen. 
I have never experienced that. I don't really know. I know about, I know some about, I may know pretty much about, but I really have not yet experienced. And that's the difference between this word. It's pushing us into this, this area of partnership, or I should say of, of, of experience, um, of, of personal, knowing personally, and then also knowing practically, okay? Now, again, on that same trip, we continued on and went to Israel. Anyone here been to Israel before? There's something about actually going to Israel. If we are believers, we're reading all about Israel as we open up our Bibles, right? And we have maps in the back to tell, take us where we need to, to go in our thinking and say, oh, this is here and that's there, and we try and get things organized. But unless you've actually been to Israel, you step on the ground there and you begin to be, you're taken to these different locations, you see them, the Bible becomes alive. And I, I express it this way, when you go on a tour of Israel, it's like moving from black and white to technicolor. You older people will understand what I'm talking about there, okay? Like moving from, you know, video to HD or something like that, right? It's this incredible change. You're like, wow. And then the, the Bible has kind of a, a topographical perspective now. As you read, you, you see mountains rise up and you see terrain kind of get into place and you begin to, to, to put things into action in your mind's eye because you've been there. You've experienced a little bit about it. Now here's, here's another one. Um, have you ever eaten at Burger King? See, now you're all really, really upset because I'm reminding you of a really bad experience you had, right? All right, let me change it a little bit. We're in Castor Valley. Have you ever eaten at Val's before? All right, anyone here not eaten at Val's? See, you have not experienced a mama burger or a papa burger, okay? I can tell you all about it, but it's not until you go to Val's and you sit down and you grab those onions that have been sitting there all day and other people have been poking around in them and you put them on. It's not until you do that you know what, what a Val's burger is like, all right? And, and have... Have you ever been to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse? You've walked by. You've seen the secret stairway that goes up there, right? Um, and if you have been there, it's probably the last time you'll be there because you spent all your money, okay? <laughs> the point is this. You can know about. But this word gnosko has to do with knowing by means of experience, to know personally, to know practically. And so as we, as we press on in this passage, it's important for us to know here that Paul, in this last statement of this, this little section here, is saying to us that he is longing to do three things. There's three longings, and these longings flow out of the effects and the implications of the resurrection on his life. And so the first thing he desires to know is this. He desires to know Christ in a personal way way, that I may know him. So this word know now is, is the hinge that three aspects will flow off of. So again, Paul is, is eager not just to know about Christ, he knows a lot about Christ already, right? I mean, Paul knows about Christ, but he's eager to know Christ in an intimate and personal way. Now, Paul knew that through Jesus he had salvation, but now Paul wants to know Jesus the Savior. But what Paul is, uh, what is important for us to see here is that these verses are the ultimate outworking of 
verses one through nine of this passage. And so this is kind of the goal. This is kind of the place where he's saying, this is what I long for. And so what he's saying here is, is rooted in the content that has just taken place. And what has just taken place? Let me summarize it by saying this. First of all, he's saying, don't put your confidence in the flesh. And here's what's going on. He brings up these false teachers that were present in the church. And he calls them dogs. This is what the false teachers believed. This is what they were promoting, putting your confidence in the flesh. And Paul's saying, don't do that. They're dogs. They're roaming the streets, looking for opportunity to spread their false teaching. They're they're sly. They're cunning. They're dangerous to those that are under their power. Not only are they dogs, they're evildoers. From a human perspective, their good works seemed welcome enough But from God's perspective, they were teaching a distorted works-based gospel, and so their works were evil. So they're dogs, they're evildoers, they're also mutilators, teaching now and promoting circumcision as the ongoing practice that God has called men to follow. And of course, that was abolished, that was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. There was a new era, a new Uh, a new world that was brought in under the headship of Jesus Christ. So these false teachers are now taking people who are believers and they're, they're drawing them into this false understanding of what it means to live with Christ or even people who are not believers just giving them a wrong understanding of what it means to be a part of Christ. So all of this false teaching ultimately denied the implications of the resurrection, we'll see that unfold in a little bit. Now they would affirm the resurrection as an historical fact, but they would deny that the implication of the resurrection um, was present on the believer. Now, it is the cross and through our union with Christ that we are made alive in Christ, and so we have no reason to put our confidence in the flesh. So true believers do not put their confidence in the flesh. There's no reason for them now, having having moved from death to life, to begin to think that now they have to prove something to God by putting confidence in their flesh. Paul says, don't put confidence in your flesh, and then he argues this way, and he says this, your worth is bound up in knowing Jesus Christ. Paul had every reason to boast. Listen to verse four and following. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So we're back in Philippians now. Verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He had, on human Hebrew terms, the ultimate portfolio, the ultimate resume. But he says, whatever was gain, whatever appeared to be in that portfolio, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And so Paul recognized that the works of the flesh, or the pursuit of the works of the flesh, were efforts that fell 
short and were unnecessary in his pursuit of Christ. It was interesting this week, I don't know if you caught the news, um, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, said the following in light of his hard work at gun control, tackling obesity and smoking. Here's what he said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Have fun with that. <laughs> and, you know, we, we laugh at that, but there's a sadness to that. And there are so many people that view life in the same way. I have done this. Therefore, certainly God is going to allow me to come into heaven. So Paul wasn't going to put confidence in his flesh, although he had this lavish Hebrew portfolio. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else is loss. Being the kind of person in, in community that would be thought of highly with all his credentials was emptiness, was vain, was loss because Paul had a greater desire, a greater pursuit, and that pursuit was knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. So Jesus Christ is gain, everything is loss, and knowing Jesus surpasses everything. And so Paul wasn't willing to drift back into a works-based lifestyle. Now, he knew that he was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. He knows that he's covered with the righteousness of Christ, that's what he says, and that heaven is not gained by doing good works. He also knows that his salvation, his justification, began his sanctification, and that God's call for him was not to revert back to a life of works, but to keep on pursuing an intimate and personal relationship with his Christ. So based on that foundation, his heart longs to know his Christ more intimately by, by virtue of experience. Now, that, that still seems like it's floating around. What does that look like? How, how do I pursue Christ in, a, in this practical, experiential, and personal way? Well, there are three things I want us to at least begin with. Paul is certainly um, not encouraging us to be touchy-feely in our, in our interaction with God, where we're just kind of like, you know, going through the day and all of a sudden, like, kind of feel this feeling. It's, oh, well, God must be speaking to me. That's not how he's approaching this experiential thing. He's not talking about emotional intimacy. He's not talking about this, a call to mysticism that, that measures uh, our relationship with Christ by our feelings or our experiencing. What, what he is focusing on here um, are primarily three things that really kind of cover what it means to grow in Christ here. The first one is spending time in the word. That is, listening to God reveal himself in his word. If we see the Bible as simply a book, we're not looking at the Bible in the right way. God has revealed himself to us. 
Now, we've said this so many, so many times. You, you, you're not, you're not going to go home today and see a bunch of cats gathered around a preaching cat about the word of God. You're not going to see chickens pausing, not laying eggs, because they're worshiping God together, and they're opening the word of God. God has uniquely blessed us with his revelation, and it is his, me, it is his means by which he communicates to us his desire, his passion, his will, his purposes. And so the first thing we do is make sure that we are taking time to be in the word of God, listening to God speak. But not only that, we're also taking time to go to God in prayer. And the reality is, often, our prayers become rote. Our prayers become prayers for specific things that are needs, and there's certainly a place for that. But prayer is also an opportunity for communion with God, where I am speaking to God. And we think about devotion time as the time where, where I'm reading and I'm praying, and I'm praying and I'm reading and I'm wrestling because God is revealing himself and it's like, God, is that really what you want me to do? And is that really a sin that is in my heart? And, and God, what do I need to do in order to, to, to rid myself of that? And there's this interaction that's going on. And there's an intimacy and there's an experience where we're saying, God, you're, you're convicting me of my sin. You're convicting me of something I need to do. And so, God, I want to do it. See, all that time you're, you're interacting with him. And it also means time in applying what God and his word says. And so there's a number of words I could use there to talk about that. It means coming to a place where you submit to him fully. It means coming to a place where you're willing to obey him when you hear him speak or when you read it. It means running to him with your burdens and your concerns, confident that he's listening, caring, and compassionate. It means trusting him. See, friends... He's, we say he's our friend, he's our savior, he's our Lord, he's our master. He's not some distant person. He is one with whom we can have a personal, ongoing, real, practical relationship that is an experience of life. And Paul's saying, that's what I want. I want want to pursue that. I want to grow in that. So, When we come to him and when we trust him, we experience peace when there's anxiety. We experience resolve when there has been conflict. We experience forgiveness when there has been sin. We experience confidence when you need to act as one of his children. We experience strength that comes from him when life is out of control, but it's not out of his control. So your life in Christ is an ongoing, lifelong pursuit to know him more, intimately, personally, and practically. That's what Paul is longing for. So Paul longed to know Christ in a personal way. He also longed to know Christ in a powerful way, in a powerful way. And now we move on to the second longing, to know Christ in a powerful way. Now notice this passage again, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul has in his desire this this powerful relationship and experience 
of what Jesus Christ experienced in being raised from the dead. This the same power that raised him from the dead. And so to help us understand that, I want to encourage you to follow with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, we find Peter, kind of like what Paul does in Ephesians, laying out this kind of, this kind of overview, big picture of salvation. But his picture is, is really laid out in, in kind of resurrection terms. Um, it's a pretty incredible passage of scripture. Um, and as we read this, just notice how similar the words are to what even Paul is talking about in, in Philippians, um, especially even when we come to this intimacy with Christ. Begin at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Just pause there. He's saying, listen, you, Christ, are worthy to be praised. He says, blessed. You're worthy of our adoration. You are worthy of our affection. And here's why. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a, what? Living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God's power now is on us as we are awaiting the last part of this resurrection. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing of your the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, or do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with, with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's this kind of flow that Peter has, and I want to put it here on, on the screen. First of all, he talks about our justification, what he has done in us being born again. There is this, our sanctification. We have been born again to this living hope. We are living our lives, and while we're living our lives, he is doing something in particular. He is guarding us by his power, and we are confident in the hope that we are given as we are living our lives here. And then there is this glorification. This is when Jesus will be revealed. This is our ultimate salvation. We are taken from this earth to be in heaven with him. So we'll call the first one new life. We can call the second one new life that leads to abundant life. And the third one we can call new life that leads to abundant life that ultimately is eternal life. And so we live our lives between what's called the cross and the resurrection. And the resurrection, the power of the resurrection is the power that takes us from death to life. It is the resurrection power that accomplishes that. It is resurrection power that is also present to help us live our lives now for his glory. And it is resurrection power that ultimately is what God is going to tap into to raise us then from this earth and to be present with him in heaven. 
So we are now living between that, that time of our first raising, spiritual raising from the dead to, to new life, to this ultimate raising, which is our final salvation. You see the picture there? Now, I, I share that with you because it's important here for us to see um, as we go back to um, our Philippians passage um, that what Paul is talking about here is not something different, but he's, he's talking about this, this time between the cross and the resurrection. This is the arena into which he wants to experience this power, okay? So in doing that, in living this life between the cross and the resurrection, we can really divide it up into, I would say, three responsibilities. We are called, first of all, to a life of sanctification, and we need power for that. This life of sanctification is where we are becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's where scripture also says we are exercising ourselves toward godliness. It's where we are putting sin to death. Now, understand this. At the moment of our salvation, that justification, all our sins are paid for. The problem is we continue to sin. And as we continue to sin, we need to continue then to rid ourselves of sin. At justification, we are no longer in bondage to sin. That sin has been paid for. Think of it in marriage terms. When you got married, you are married. But that doesn't mean that, that there's no conflict at all. And you have, to, you have to kind of now work at maintaining a short list well, in our Christian walk, we, our sins have been paid for, but he now wants us to pursue being like what we are. He says, you are holy, and we are holy because we're covered in his righteousness. But now he is calling us to a life of pursuing that holiness, being holy as we are holy. Friends, that's our life in Christ right now. So when you sin and you confess your sin or you're repenting of your sin, it's not that you're repenting of your sin for salvation if you're already a Christian. It's that you're restoring your relationship to where it needs to be and you're working on the habits of sin that you may have present in your life. And so we're called to a life of sanctification. We're also called to a life of service. God has given us all kinds of gifts and we, we, we could go around this room and say, hey, you know, what do you think your spiritual gift is? You can take some of these inventories that are often very, very helpful just to identify maybe a spiritual gift you have. But the thing is, whatever God has given us, if we just simply pursue that gift in our own power, it's going to fall flat. And Paul here is saying, listen, I, I, I need resurrection power to pursue sin in my life. And let's remember this, Paul was a sinner, and he continued to be a sinner, and he needed the power of God in his sanctification, but he also needed the power of God in his service for God. This Friday night, I went to our sister church, Higher Ground Church, and celebrated um, um, with them that night on the Good Friday service, and it was really just a, a wonderful time of song and celebration. And I looked in the in the um, the, the program they had there to you know to, to see who was speaking, thinking it was going to be Pastor Billy Dempsey. Looking forward to that and being encouraged by him. 
And noticing that the person that was going to speak is a man by the name of Ricky. I know him as Big Ricky, simply because he is typically the usher. He's one of the guys you meet there. He teaches Sunday school there, but he's a big guy, jovial, friendly, all that kind of stuff. And I know that Billy has been working on some men in his church to be ministers of the word, to preach the word. And he said, it's really, really hard to get the guys to do that. And so when I saw Ricky's name down there, I'm thinking, man, this, is, this might even be his first time. Ricky gets up, opens up the word, and starts to speak. And it's like, it's like a new person was there. He just began to preach and proclaim and declare and proclaim and push and celebrate. And I'm sitting there just saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you that Ricky is not preaching in his own power, but that somehow you were working through him. So what he was doing just seemed very, very natural. And I tell you what, the whole church family afterwards gave him a, gave him a clap and a standing ovation. And it wasn't so much because of the technical content of the sermon. I think it's primarily because he was willing to be used by God and to exercise his gifts. And when they saw, here's a person who may have had a gift that's kind of on the sidelines and afraid to use it, but now actually uses it and seeing what God does when they're willing to use their gifts, they're just celebrating the fact, here is a man who stepped out by faith to use that gift and God used him mightily. And friends, that can be true of all of us. Whatever gifts that we have. And Paul is saying, I want that resurrection power to use the gifts that you've given me for your glory. I want to know the power of your resurrection. So it could be preaching. It could be playing the piano. It could be singing. It could be teaching a Sunday school class. It could be sharing your testimony. It could be talking to your coworker about the gospel or dealing with a disgruntled uh, friend or neighbor or disciplining your children or seeking to resolve a conflict with your spouse. All of these friends are arenas where we need God's power. And if we pursue it in our own strength, it'll fall flat. So God wants us all to be fueled with the power of the resurrection. The third arena here is this. We're called to a life of stewardship. And God has given us much to look after and to take care of our families, our jobs, our resources, our health. God's saying, listen, I, you know, I'm giving these to you, but, but you need to do this, not in your own strength. You need my power to do that. And so Paul's saying, listen, you've given me these responsibilities, God, to steward, and I need your power. I want your power. I long for your power to be at work as I care for these things. So Paul longed for this this, this personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. He longed to experience this power that raised Jesus from the dead to be true as he lived his life between the cross and the resurrection while he was present, serving God, that the power of God would be at work in all these different areas in his life. And then the third thing now he says that he longs for is to know the partnership, um, to know Christ in a partnership way. Verse 10 he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now, Paul is not saying, I want to be crucified. Paul is not saying, I want to go into a tomb and to rise again just like Jesus did. There's something else that's going on here. This word share has the idea 
of fellowship has the idea of partnership. And so Paul is speaking of his longing to have a deep partnership and communion with Christ in suffering. When Paul met Jesus on that road to Damascus, he gained a companion to be with him throughout his suffering. But the companion, who is Jesus, was one who endured far more suffering than Paul or anyone else would ever experience. And so Jesus understands suffering on a human level. He was rejected. The authorities attempted to arrest him countless times. In the end, people beat him and pulled his beard and put a crown of thorns on his head. They whipped him with vicious cat of nine tails. They forced him to carry the cross until another could carry it for him. They nailed him to a cross. People spat at him and in front of him, they hurled abuses at him, telling him to save yourself if you're the son of God. They yelled, crucify him, and the list can go on. And in the end, the one who knew no sin would become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The suffering of Christ, hear this, had a purpose in God's unfolding plan. And this is where Paul is tapping into as far as his desire to know Christ in a partnership way. He is desiring to be used by God the Father in the same way that God the Father used his son Jesus Christ. In other words, in the unfolding of his plan that may include and likely would include suffering. So Paul was willing to humble himself under this will of God to suffer for the sake of his kingdom, to suffer for the sake of his people. So the power of this resurrection would enable Paul to endure and to be joyful in any kind of suffering he had to face for the sake of the gospel. And friends, that is what we can long for too. God is not saying, hey, I want you to go be crucified. But he is saying, I have a plan for you in the overarching um, purpose of my redemptive plan, I have not returned yet, and so I am working my will through my children. And some of those children, because they're my children, are going to experience times of trial and suffering. So whatever struggles or suffering we face, because we are God's children, that we would find strength in partnering with Christ for his glory. Now, this might come, first of all, um, through suffering that comes as a result of persecution. And certainly in Paul's, Paul's thinking, this is probably primary. Um, you know, think about just being ridiculed because you're a Christian. You don't have to watch TV much or turn the pages of a newspaper too much or scan the internet too much to, to find the kind of ridicule that would be there. You know, the Lord's coming back when? Ha, 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 right? Um, just kind of this, this, this relegation of, oh, you're, you know, you're Christians. You're, you're, 
ignoramus simpletons that just have to use religion as a crutch, right? Just relegated. It's like, how can we even think that you would, you would have a brain to interact with society because you believe in this religious thing called Jesus Christ? And ultimately, friends, and this is what happens in a society, there's a desire to remove those who are followers. And this is the ultimate persecution. These Christians are the reason for our problem. That's how Nero started to kind of get everyone to turn against the Christians, blaming them for the, the fire that took place. Um, my friends, this, this, this is the kind of stuff that maybe we are protected from because we're living in the United States of America, but friends, I don't, I don't you know, things can turn quickly. And they have been turning quickly. This might also come through suffering that comes as a result of God's providence, his providential plan. God uses our sicknesses, our diseases. He uses our financial loss. He uses tragedy. He uses hardships of various kinds as the means by which he wants to declare to the world his glory. (laughs) That's hard for us to comprehend because we're kind of focused on the now and God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Why would I go through this kind of suffering? Don't you love me? And God says, I do love you, but remember, this is a temporary place for you. The place I have in store for you is gain. Death is gain. The things that are important in this life, they're nice, they're there for you to enjoy, but they're loss in comparison to what I have yet in store for you. Now listen to the words of James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We read it already, but let me remind you of it. In this you rejoice, though now for a a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes back and says, I took you through a trial, I took you through suffering, and, and you're saying, I held on to joy. You celebrate with him at his return what, a, what an incredible opportunity to praise God. And, and while you are going through that trial saying, God, I am, I'm holding on to joy, I'm holding on to gain, you are declaring to those people around you the greatness and the goodness of God. And it's the kind of thing, friends, that can only take place by virtue of the power of the resurrection and the ability for us to share in the sufferings of Christ. So our desire to know Christ in a partnership way is the fuel that gives us access and strength to be joyful in the midst of these trials because we're confident that God is working in us and that God is working through us to bring glory to his name. So Paul's desire ultimately was to be totally surrendered to the will of God. And he knew 
that such submission would naturally include suffering. Because that's what Jesus experienced and it's what he promised would take place among his followers. And then in verse 11 of Philippians 3, we find these words, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now what is Paul getting at here? This is actually a, um, a, 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 an interesting, difficult little section because it's hard to translate. Is Paul afraid he won't make the resurrection train? <laughs> Somehow, you know, when that final salvation takes place that he's gonna miss it, no. Is Paul somehow fearful that his suffering is a work to get him into the final stage of salvation? No, he's already said uh, in, in chapter one, verse six, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Now here, here are some words from uh, Ralph Kuyper that are gonna be helpful for us to understand verse 11. What then does Paul mean when he desires to attain the resurrection of the dead. There is a clue in the Greek text. The word for resurrection in verse 11 differs from the word resurrection in verse 10. In verse 11, the word has a little preposition in front of it. The preposition ek, which is equivalent to our word out. The word resurrection literally means to place or to stand up. And so to the Greek mind, Living people were standing up, dead people were lying down. So, making a Greek pun, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering that I may give the spiritually dead a preview of eternal life in action as I am standing up, outstanding among others, or so among those who are spiritually on their backs, spiritually dead. And then he goes on and says this, or to put it still more colloquially, as I walk in your streets, as I walk into your homes, as I walk into your stores, as I walk into your offices, as I mingle among the sons of men, I want to, to be so living for Christ, so outstanding for him, that you can see that I am a living one among the dead ones. So you might want to say he's saying that by any means possible, I may attain the outstanding nature from the dead. That I may be this living example of someone who is alive because of the resurrection. Now, for the glory of God. Now notice what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. He, he, he hasn't arrived, he hasn't finished. He's awaiting that final resurrection day, and while he's waiting, he's pressing on with God's strength and for his glory. And so friends, the question is this, is your desire to be so living for Christ that you will appear as a resurrected person among those who are spiritually dead? because of choices you make, because of, of ways you respond to things, because of things that you're passionate about, should be, because that's what God has created you for. As we bring things to a close, I want us to go back to Acts chapter 17. 
Acts 17. And I realize we've bounced a lot at the beginning, but at the end here, I just want to draw your attention to these verses I read earlier. Because it leaves us with it leaves us with a consideration about all that we've talked about today. Paul has been addressing the people in the Areopagus in Athens, and in verse 31 he says this, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has appoint, he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again about that. We can sit and listen to what the word of God says about the resurrection, and we can sit and listen and not have a care and not be moved. In fact, actually think it's funny. We can mock it. We can think it's stupid. We can think that, you know, this stuff really doesn't make any sense. How can they believe it? Or we can come and we can say, we want to hear more about this. Now, this is Resurrection Sunday. We have a lot of people that are gathered here with us today that are part of our church family and some that are friends, family. And I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know if you have embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. But can I just plead with you? The resurrection has been given to us so many times in the Bible as a proof that Jesus did do what he said he would do as a proof that what this Christianity is about is not some pie-in-the-sky thing, that this is real, this is rooted in history, it's rooted before the creation of this world, and that Jesus Christ is the one that has come to reconcile us to God. Would you today, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, consider your soul, consider the condition of your soul, consider the the place to which you're headed, and that is an eternity apart from God, which scripture describes as hell, and ultimately, the lake of fire. But, if God so is working in your heart that you're saying, I want to know more, there are people here that would wanna tell you more. That the gospel is that we are separated from God and there is nothing we could do in ourselves to be reconciled to him. So God in his redemptive plan started before the creation of the world, had us in mind, and he brought his son Jesus Christ to this earth and was born in the likeness of man. And as man, he grew knowing that he would have to go to Jerusalem. And when he went to Jerusalem as a mature man, having ministered for a number of years, he went to a cross and there he was crucified in innocence and there he died and in dying he took upon himself the sin of the world and in taking on the sin of the world he has made it possible that we who are being drawn by God can enter into the family of God if we would simply believe that what he says is true and in believing we have the great privilege of having new life and this new life is a life that can be abundant life, and ultimately it is eternal life with him. 
So through the resurrection, we can be reconciled to Christ. But I also want us to think about these next things. Three final contemplations. Through the resurrection, we can know the Godhead more intimately. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I want to know him. You and I have the privilege of pursuing and developing a deeper, fuller relationship with God that is fueled by the power of the resurrection. Don't take that lightly. If you're like me, you, you have Bibles in the teens at home. Little ones, old ones, new ones, study ones, thick ones, thin ones, different <coughs> versions. Would you pick one up and wear out the cover? Wrinkle the pages. Allow God to speak to you through his word. Spend time pouring out your heart to him in prayer and then listen to the things that he's saying. We not only can know the Godhead more, we can also apply God's truth powerfully. God hasn't revealed our sinfulness and our struggles and he's not desiring to do those things simply to cause grief for us. He reveals our sinful condition so that that sinful condition can be resolved. And that sinful condition, that ongoing sinful condition can be resolved by us applying the truths that he gives us that are power so that we, can, we no longer have to be bound in sin. We can be freed from that sin. And the third thing is this. We can proclaim the gospel effectively. Friends, let me remind you that, that Jesus Christ being raised from the tomb is power on display. And so many times we feel like, well, I just, I don't have a powerful testimony. I don't have the, you know, the right words to say. It is amazing what God can do through the insignificance of man and the failure of man to put words together properly that even through a mess of a presentation of the gospel, God can bring someone to the place where they're saying, I want you, Jesus. And that person can be brought into the family of God. Why? Because God is at work powerfully in the lives of those that he is pursuing himself. So open your mouth. Talk about the things of God and see him at work as you do so. Lord, help us today as we contemplate the fact that this resurrection is for us now. And Lord, its implications are powerful for us now as we seek to live our lives for your glory. And Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, Lord, who has not come to a place where they've embraced you as Lord and Savior, I ask, Lord, I plead that today would be a day where they would consider that and they would humble themselves before you. And Lord, if there, if there are your children that are here who affirm that you are their savior but have drifted into a life of somehow trying to please God with their works rather than the, the, the spiritual disciplines being the, the means of their growth and intimacy rather than the measure of it. Lord, help, 
Help us to make that adjustment back to where we need to be. To see, Lord, that you desire for us to, to grow in our intimacy with you. Lord, not simply to develop habits that we can say, look at me, God. Lord, we, we need you. And Lord, allow us today to celebrate the life that we have because of this new life that has come to us by virtue of resurrection power. We trust it, and we live it, and we breathe it, and we proclaim it for your glory in your precious name. Amen.